Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. Before we get into this week's episode, a quick word about our partner, Titleist, makers of the number one ball in golf. If you're not already playing a Titleist golf ball, you definitely should be. The all-new Pro V1 and Pro V1X have been redesigned for more speed, more precision, and more consistency than ever before. Most of our clients here at Altus already know that they should be playing a Titleist golf ball, so it's often a question of which is the best for their game. The Pro V1 has a softer feel and lower flight than the Pro V1X, and the Pro V1X has a higher flight with more spin and a firmer feel. Both models provide proven drop-and-stop greenside control, lasting durability, and unsurpassed quality. Prove how good you can be. Tee up the new Pro V1 or Pro V1X on your next round. And now, this week's episode. I want to welcome you to the Earn Your Edge podcast. By passion and by practice, we at Altus are driven to decode the difference makers that high performers possess, the ways and means they use to earn their edge, to create separation from the mass, to leave mediocrity in the rearview mirror, and travel this pathway to mastery. Be it through nature or nurture or a mixture of both, the journey to uncover these things is the journey that we're on. Hey there, it's Cameron McCormick. And Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance. And in this episode of the Earn Your Edge podcast, we're joined by Dr. Gio Valiente, one of the most prominent psychologists in the sports and business world. Now, you may or may not know of him, but you would most definitely know of his work as it's changed the lives of hundreds upon hundreds of players, both in the professional and amateur world of golf. And additionally, he currently serves as the head performance coach at Point72, which is billionaire investor Steve Cohen's private hedge fund. So building some context for this conversation and uh, also to fill in the important pieces of your origin story, uh, Gio, how did you come to psychology as a profession and how does this fit with your experience and then subsequent practice in the sports world? Good question. I was uh, I actually wrote a chapter that got published in a book about, about the early beginnings. I was an undergraduate student at the University of Florida. And I had a really incredible professor, a guy named Frank Baharis, who has since passed away. And he was such an incredible teacher. And he was trying to do a study. And he, he had asked me, because I used to spend a lot of time after class, we would talk about psychology and debate philosophy. And he asked me if I could get 10 surveys filled out for a study he was doing. And two weeks later, I came back with 150 <laughs> so he could tell that I was really eager and interested in the study. And he said, where did you get these? And I had canvassed the campus and called in favors. And it really was the first academic study I'd participated in. Years later, he went to Emory University and reached out to me. I was on another track in life. And they had a doctoral fellowship available at Emory. And he wanted me to be his one graduate student if I was interested. So I decided to give it a shot, you know, because there was nothing to lose. And I found that academia fitted me perfectly and that I really loved psychology. So the, it was, it was it, I would say, somewhat serendipitous, though I showed a real interest early. Well, I know that Cameron and I are both really excited because there's, you know, we're, we kind of serve as amateur sports psychologists every day on a daily basis. And so to actually have someone who is, is a true expert here, you know, this serves us well just because it's going to, we're going to be able to discuss all the kind of things that we're most intrigued about. And what I would really like to do, because I know that we're going to talk about all the things that happen to us mentally when we're in, in competition and trying to perform at the highest level. I think as a starting point where we would like to start is for you to provide just a foundation of understanding for kind of not only what happens in our mind, but but maybe more importantly, what happens in our body, that somatic response, so that then that can kind of inform the rest of our conversation. Because we, we kind of think of, well, I've really got to get control of the thoughts in my head. 
but then there are some physical reactions that happen in our body that make it really difficult to perform. So if you can provide that kind of expert's understanding of what that physiological response was, I think that will inform the rest of our conversation. Okay, so just for for clarity and transparency, where I live is not really deeply in the physiological side of things. It's really the intersection of the psychological, physiological, and technical, right? So the way I think about it is the way the dominoes fall in terms of a causal chain. And I've got some some models I can send to you guys, and you can put them up on your website later that describe this. But the way it happens is sometimes we feel something, and then we have a thought, and sometimes we have a thought, and then we have a feeling. You know, the famous Robert Frost poetry, that, that poetry begins with a feeling and finds a thought. And E.E. E. Cummings famously said, since feeling is first, and he goes on to write his, his, his love sonnets. But we have emotion often prior to having a feeling, right? So we have this visceral emotion, and then we assign meaning to it. Well, I'm, I'm feeling this way. Well, it must be because, and you find something to attribute it to. And one of the things we know in the research on cognitive biases is it's very difficult for us to be accurate observers of our own behavior. Like the brain is not designed for us to be honest with ourselves about ourselves. You know, this goes back to Freud's defense mechanisms now repackaged as cognitive biases, like confirmation bias and so forth. And so the important thing to me as more of an applied psychology rather than uh, theoretical psychology is once the emotional response begins, once the limbic system and or the amygdala trigger, cortisol levels spike, blood pressure goes up, pupils dilate, heart rate tends to go up, perception changes, there's a narrowing of perception. I remember um, you know, the old famous golfer line that a confident golfer sees the green beside the lake and the unconfident golfer sees the lake beside the green. And so we know that, for example, confidence matters because it changes perception. You know, what we extract from a given thing will change. I remember many years ago being on the range with Tiger Woods out at Isleworth, and he was having a really rough, rough time driving the golf ball. And I said, what's happening? And he said, well, I stare down the fairway and it goes, and it starts to look really narrow. And that's a perfect explanation of when the physiological changes start to happen. It's not only physical change that we can feel in all the ways that I described, it's also a perceptual change. So for, you know, for golfers, the hole literally looks smaller. Sometimes it looks bigger. And at the extreme level, you know, in a flow state, it looks really, really big. And this is true in all endeavors and all sports and all walks of life that what you extract from a given situation, the objective situation is often determined by your subjective state of mind. So the fact that the cognitive and the emotional, and then the technical all dance together, and being able to untangle and untease them, I think, is the, is the real challenge of a, of a talented uh, professional. I, I would say sports psychologist, but whether it's what you guys do or what I do, there's really just a difference on emphasis, not really expertise. Dovetails nicely into a pretty important question, something that you and I have discussed in times past, but we really want to kind of pull on this thread here in the conversation, it's the mission to unpack how high performers have them in that edge and separate itself, themselves from their peers. Basically, the differentiators that distinguish good from great from world class in terms of the mental makeup. Can we speak to that at some length? You know, it's very hard to generalize exceptionalities. And I want you to think about that statement. Think of a normal distribution, the Gaussian distribution. Folks who do what we do tend to 
live in the world of exceptional individuals. So one of the things I'll often say is like Steve Cohen has more in common with Jordan Spieth than Jordan Spieth has in common with Charles Howell III or has in common with Sergio Garcia. I mean, the only thing those guys share is golf. Whereas what Steve Cohen, Tiger Woods, Jordan Spieth share is living at the tail end of the distribution in terms of accomplishment, you know, being, you know, Laird Hamilton, the surfer. I just watched a documentary on the world's greatest bowler. And you realize there's a, you know, Stuart, uh, Stuart McGill, the, the, the back specialist, like there is an individual in every domain who is arguably just better, just lives at the tail end of the curve. And when you live and immerse yourself in that population, you come to realize that a lot of them are just their outliers, right? So try to extract or extrapolate generalities by definition is hard to do. Now, having said that caveat, what you tend to see, in my experience, is, is an all, lack of a better word, people who are all in on their craft and on their domain. Uh, their vocation and their avocation blend. Their work and their hobby is indistinguishable. You know, this idea of work-life balance is a nice model for people who want to live two standard deviations from the norm, who want to be pretty good or maybe above average or really good, or just good enough not to get fired. But, like, work-life balance works. But that doesn't describe, you know, the people that I know and the people that I, I work with and that you work with because the balance only comes through the process of discovery, right? Right. Clarity and calmness only comes as part of the mission, not from, you know, sitting at a beach, looking at the waves and pondering life. I mean, it's an active process of discovery. And so the idea of being all in on your craft, you know, I watch the way Steve Cohen works and he works, you know, he's 63 years old and has countless billions of dollars and he works six days a week, every week as a matter of protocol. He does the markets during the day, debriefs at the end of the day. Every Sunday takes idea calls with some of the smartest people in the world. And which, you know, segues nicely into, into bullet point two is process, right? So the best that I've ever seen are all in on what they do, where their vocation and avocation merge, their sense of identity is coupled into, you know, oftentimes you hear people say, this is what you do, not who you are. Okay. That's nice and healthy sometimes when it gets dysfunctional. You want to be able to decouple who a person is from what they do. But greatness is defined by total immersion. I mean, try telling that to Van Gogh about painting, right? You have to live the experience to create the body of work. And that's not just, I mean, you look at the collected letters of Vincent Van Gogh and you read them and you realize, you know, the body of work he and his colleagues produced was not an accident. It wasn't a random moment of inspiration. It was an everydayness to it. And then there's a process to it. Now, process has gotten really misunderstood and really almost bastardized, I think, in high-performance settings over the years. Because think of a drug addict or an alcoholic. Like, they have processes. They do the same thing every day. And what people don't realize is a rut is a process. It's the same thing every day. So process all by itself doesn't solve for anything. Because, you know, like I said, you know, dysfunctional people have you know, couples who fight all the time. They have a process, right? Dysfunctional marriages are full of processes. And so what I think the best in the world are able to do is, is begin with, you know, deciding this is what I want to do and who I want to become. And I'm willing to, to do what it takes to be the best. And then they start to build a process 
that's consistent and repeatable. And the reason process matters, many reasons, but one of the most important is when something goes off, at least you can identify where and why. So you're not down a wild goose chase, right? So it's it's the merging of vocation and avocation. Who you are and what you do tend to merge, and then you build a process that tends to drive down that that vision. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. We're defining, therefore, an obsession. Is that an appropriate way to represent the passion that the tenth of a percent are pursuing their vocation, avocation with? I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get into semantics here. In a colloquial sense, obsession tends to have a negative turn because sometimes people get obsessed about things that are unachievable or that are not theirs to be obsessed about, and that can cross some lines. I I like the word immersion. And the other thing, Cameron, is obsession tends to convey, in my opinion, a sense of choice. Like, I'm choosing to be obsessed about that thing. A lot of times the people at the tail end of the curve, you know, we use the word calling for a reason, right? Sometimes it calls to us, right? And and there's a need. And so I like the word immersion with maybe episodic moments of obsession where you obsess over the details. This is true in the process of science, by the way. If you look at scientific discovery, by the time it happens, think of Crick and Watson who discovered the structure of DNA. There's a lot of, there's a great article out there I recommend to everybody called The Mundanity of Excellence, The Mundanity of Excellence. There's a lot of everydayness and drudgery and just just slogging along, as you know, what you guys do. There are so many minutes, days, weeks, months, years, where it doesn't feel like you're making any progress, but you do the work anyway. And you realize that if you're just willing to stick with it and commit and just keep going, the discovery comes, but it's not immediate. It's a byproduct of the immersion and the total commitment to that path. A follow-up real quick, that sea of sameness, that in the rut, whether it's functional or dysfunctional process, given that what I'm hearing is that the fact that a person has a process isn't necessarily a, a differentiator between good, great, world-class or otherwise, I guess what are the underpinning mechanisms of reflection that would allow someone to break out of that well-worn groove if it is in a dysfunctional state or trending in a direction where it is dysfunctional to recognize they have to pivot, they have to do something different to either build or recover a formerly good process? Boy, this is the multi, 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 multi multi-million dollar question, right? Because when you're talking about the outliers, more often than not, there's a a bit of independence. In, In other words, they've had help along the way, but a lot of the greatness is sort of internal. It's of them. It's not externalized to the world. I forget who the coach was who said about Jack Nicholas. You know, he won 18 majors and not a single one. They'd, they'd convened all the people who had taught Jack over the years and said not, not a single one of us could have stopped him from getting 14 of them. The idea being Jack's greatness was of Jack. And I think it's probably true of Tiger. I mean, he's done it with, as far as I know, five coaches, including him, right? And sort of building mental models that work for him, you know, paint to the picture and you know, and how he thinks about the game. There's a lot of input. And as you know, he picks the brain of every professional on tour. The way he describes it is he'll take one nugget from people and discard the rest. So he'll ask questions, 
know what to get rid of and, and then know, you know, what to keep. So I say that because greatness is oftentimes cataloged or owned by the by the individual. It's in and of that. Now, that makes it hard for the people around them because when you see Tiger Woods is, a, is an obvious example. Many people in the golf world saw the destructive path very early before it became a, a national sensation. But the problem for Tiger was how many times over the years had people told him what to do and it was the wrong advice and Tiger probably learned very early, I got to rely on myself here. You know, my call is the best call. What I see is what works and that's all that matters. And if you go back to his belief system from when he was a child, you know, it's a real testament to the American spirit of just individualism. It's Ayn Rand objectivism, right? It's the individual, you know, putting a task on his or her shoulders and, and going out and challenging the world, right? It's Horatio Alger. And so what I often advise high achievers to do is you, you have to own it yourself, right? This is, this is your, your game. And the game because it's your game. Take ownership. Don't externalize responsibility. Don't externalize blame. But you should find, you know, a handful of people who you trust as a person and you trust their judgment. We call your, your mirrors. You know, Einstein one time said that the fish is the last one to discover the water. The idea being if you take a goldfish out of a bowl and you say, hey, look, you've been in water your whole life. And then you put him in. All of a sudden he's got that subject object perspective that he probably didn't have before. And so that's part of the problem of being an individual. We experience life subjectively. But we are not objective. We don't, we don't get to see our experience from another person's perspective. I see you, but I don't see myself. You know, poker players know this very well, which is why they create teams of people and say, listen, you know my flaws. You tell me what I'm doing wrong, and I'll tell you what you're doing wrong, and we'll work together because I don't see myself accurately, and you, and you don't see yourself. I mean, once you get to the point as a human being where you can admit you do not see yourself accurately, all of that is a great moment of humility. Then the most important part is surrounding yourself by people who you trust, who have a great eye, and when they say, hey, listen, you're, you're off path here, and I could see it, and here's my call. Davis Love III has, has a nice little missive about this, how he and his father put together a process around this, where he and his father both had the right to have an opinion, but it was a two-to-one ratio, and, and Davis had the final call in moments of disagreement on his career. But you give someone else license you know, to have an opinion. So... It's an imperfect process, Cameron, it really is. You could build models and metrics around it, but at the end of the day, there are so many little moments that can be the turning point for good or bad, and it takes a real critical eye to be able to detect, detect it. And so the best that a professional golfer or an amateur golfer can do is have a team of people who he trusts, she trusts, who have great judgment in and of themselves, who are high-functioning people of themselves. Look, I think Le LeBron James did a nice job surrounding himself with people he can trust and building a real team around him that were also very sharp, very aggressive, loyal to each other. And I think that's a, a good model. You just mentioned LeBron. We talked about Jack. We talked about Tiger. And you brought up those teams. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, as you said about Jack, that Jack was going to be great. So as your job now and what our jobs are as coaches is to try to develop some of these superpowers. But when we're talking about the tail end of the distribution, how much of this mental superpower kind of skill set do you feel is innate 
and how much of that is developed and you know if it's developed then then that begins the conversation of you know what are the best strategies to develop that but just interested to get your take there on innate versus developed and some of these mental superpowers yeah you know if, if you go to sort of psychological conferences as i have for the last 20 years and, and what you realize is the debate on this is never ending like nature nurture is is a never-ending debate you know the book called the bell curve came out 25 years ago saying that things like intelligence are so you know tightly are so genetically driven and predisposed and innate and, and now you've got books like the talent code and the culture code by daniel coyle saying oh no it's just myelination it's just 10,000 hour rule and that's been overblown in my opinion as well right the pendulum has overswung the best source as far as i'm concerned are the individuals themselves so if you listen closely to what Tiger has said, if you listen closely to what Conor McGregor has said, if you listen closely to what Kelly Slater, surfer, uh, has said, or Bodie Miller, uh, the eight-time world champion slalom skier, even, uh, well, Lance Armstrong goes both ways with the cycling. It's a combination. It just is. And people have predispositions that is genetically that are genetically inherited toward particular things for example musical capabilities are largely heritable now if you're also in an environment that nurtures that where you're surrounded by music that switches the genes on there's a better chance you're going to develop some level of expertise and competence and then beyond that it's the passion and the drive to immerse yourself and practice it so you know i am not of the belief and the evidence i think is supports this which is why i believe it that everyone is capable of doing anything they want if only they want it bad enough. I just don't believe that. There are pre Van Halen, the rock band Van Halen, great story where Eddie Van Halen for Christmas had gotten a set of drums and Alex Van Halen had gotten a, a guitar. And four months later, Eddie was struggling on the drums and Alex was struggling on the guitar. And one day they decided to switch. And within a week, Eddie Van Halen had mastered like 150 songs and it was playing on the neck and it was in, and you hear Alex talk about watching it, right? There's a predisposition there toward, you see things differently. Go back to the movie Good Will Hunting, that great line where, where the actor says, Matt Damon says, you know, Mozart looks at a keyboard, you know, and, and he sees music and I see a box of wood. And that's, I think, how most people experience life. Like people can see, they, they see different things. In fact, I'll say one more comment on it. I'm sorry, but it's something I'm really interested in. Daniel Tiamat, who's the world's foremost polymath, can multiply pi times itself in his head 22,000 times, right? He's got a condition called synesthesia. Synesthesia is a condition in the brain where there's a combination of sensorial information. So when he looks at numbers, numbers have three-dimensional texture and color and emotion. Right, So eight is happy, and seven is sad, and one is lonely, and all of a sudden he's got a relationship with numbers. But if you ask him to do arithmetic the way that most you know, you know, fourth grade teachers ask a kid to do arithmetic and sound out the numbers, he's like, I, I don't see it that way. It's just not what I see. And so he gets, just like Einstein did, gets a, literally a dunce cap put on his head saying, you know, you're a bad, a bad student. And so, you know, respecting that every individual sees things in a particular way and learning how to nurture that greatness, I think, is really important. But by no means do I think everyone is predisposed to live at the tail end of everything. 
I must have that same condition, Geo, because when I look at my scorecard and there's sixes on it, they give they they, they elicit this dr- massive emotional response from me. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, Tim. That's a good one. So going to handling pressure, can we explore that landscape of pressure? Because we hear it so often from I guess queries of advice from our youth clients that are trying to grow the skills to play beyond the level they're currently at. They're trying to level up. And whether you read or you talk or you hear about acceptance of results, being okay to handle all the possible outcomes as one of those facets that kind of downregulates the pressure that you feel in executing any particular shot that a person might encounter in, in a round of competitive golf or any golf for that matter. But then on the other side of that, sometimes you get this response of, well, it feels like I'm resigning to the fact that I'm going to or may hit a bad shot. And that duality right there or the need some clarity in my mind. Can you speak to the distinction between acceptance of results or maybe unpack that with a bit more clarity than what I've uh, asked in a question? Yeah, I can speak. To, uh, and listen, if I start rambling again, feel free to cut me off. Sometimes, you know, I, I, cause I think about this stuff all the time. So you're giving me an outlet to articulate what's on my mind anyway, but I'll try to keep this a little briefer. It's okay. No, no, don't brain dump on us. I love it. (laughs) You know, there's a great essay by, I believe his name was Lawrence Bloom, called On Universality and Particularity, right? And it it is exactly what it says it is. It's, you look for the universals, the things that connect individuals along a category, but then the particulars, the, the individual things that separate. And so this is always the tension as coaches that we're trying to solve for, is the universality and the particularity. In other words, what is common to all great champions? And then the the mistake most people make, because they want scale. And this is where I think there's a real opportunity for whether it's you or me or what you do or what I do, is they go and study, and this is the weakness in big data and analytics as well, I might add, is they find these patterns. And then they say, okay, here's what all the best putters in the world do. They do this and this, or they say, you know, most of the best putters. And then an individual comes to them and, 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 and says, okay, well, I'm the expert. I've studied all the best in the world. Here's what you should do. And they try to impose on an individual what they ought to do. But the problem is they haven't taken the time to know the person. They haven't asked, It's like going to a doctor's office and the doctor's asking five questions, saying, yep, you've got a herniated disc, you need surgery. But you didn't ask about how long and, and how it happened, and, and you've looked at one MRI, but you know, there's a lot that goes into making an accurate diagnosis. You're not doing it as a doctor out of time and money. But a real ex- a professional, the Hippocratic Oath, would say, do no harm, first of all. Second of all, appreciate the universality. In most cases, here's what's happening. But in your case, it might not be happening. So let me treat you as an individual. And so to go back to the question about pressure, people experience pressure for different reasons. Consistent with that, the same individual can experience pressure. Different people experience pressure differently and for different reasons, and even the same individual. The pressure is domain-specific. Let's use Rory McIlroy as an example. Do you think Rory McIlroy is confident when he shows up on the first tee in Charlotte? Absolutely. He shot at 62 or 64. There's rookie. There's nothing to lose. Masters is behind him. He's freewheeling it. He loves the golf course, fits his eye, drivers everywhere. He's confident. How do you think Roy McElroy feels on the first tee at Augusta National? If we're being really honest with ourselves. 
He has a, a self-admitted mental block to Augusta. <laughs> he said it. In 2018, on the first tee of Sunday, he almost missed the golf ball. In the final group, if you look closely at what happened, he hit it so far off the toe and so far right, and he managed to scrap together a reasonable score. But everything that could have gone well for him that day did when he was paired with Patrick Reed. That was not good golf. And so it happened again this year. And here's my point. It's not to bash Rory because he's an incredible ambassador of the game and a lovely human being. Individuals and individual situations trigger people in different ways. So oftentimes the better question to ask is, what do I do with the moment? What do I do with the moment? Think of it this way. You can have a junior golfer who has a lot of swag, and, and the reason he has swag is because he looks to his right and looks to his left at his academy, and he knows he's better than everyone at his academy. And so that's what's building his confidence. So he doesn't feel pressure in that local situation. And then you take him to AJGA or tournaments, and he starts moving up into national tournaments, and you've taught him well. You've taught him to focus on the golf course, ignore short-term results, and all sorts of things. And so he's got a real run going and he's got that the type of confidence that teenagers have but then the coach from georgia tech or the coach from the university of florida the coach from stanford shows up at a tournament and it happens to be on a day that he doesn't have this player doesn't have his good stuff and so he doesn't have his good stuff and so all of a sudden his mechanics are just fractionally off but he's swinging so hard because he's been so confident for so long swing speeds are up he's taking a lot of risk because he's always able to recover but now he's a little bit off, and there are eyes on him, and he has a really bad day. He shoots an 84. And all of a sudden, it gets in his head, man, that coach, that's what that coach thinks of me. That particular, this happened to Jack Nicholas when Bobby Jones showed up to watch him play as an amateur. Jack sailed it over Bobby Jones's head. Bobby Jones was, was, was in the gallery. Sailed it over his head to another fairway. So everyone, no one's immune to pressure. Jack Nicholas passed out in the delivery room of three of his kids. So it's just a matter of what's the trigger. For Jack, golf is not the trigger, but seeing kids born is. Bobby Jones was. And so, again, this goes back to the idea of one size does not fit all. Even though I write about the importance of acceptance, I don't say that to every golfer. Because some golfers, for some golfers, acceptance is deadly. Like, these are people who aren't competitive enough. And they're just sort of, you know, they have a talent and they've worked sort of hard at it, but there's no urgency. And so for people with no urgency, acceptance is not the best thing for them you want them accountable you want them feeling amiss you want them you know uh, feeling the disappointment that's going to make them get up and work harder the next day so the idea being to understand how to coach an individual about pressure i think oftentimes you have to know the individual how about them knowing themselves are there mechanisms tools tactics that you would describe someone to hey take these steps start to perhaps journal and i don't mean to fill your head with ideas here because you have all the ideas that we're looking to understand but how would a person begin that process of understanding their best performing self and how to bring about that or at least a greater greater probability of their best performing self showing up in whatever particular event or pursuit they have really important and again i'm not surprised you're the only person in 20 years ever asked that question of course it speaks to your excellence cam when my career pivoted for the better I'd been having some success for about four or five years because I had you know, really good research and I was applying it, applied psychology, to athletes and getting, I thought, pretty good results and you know, keeping, keeping me busy and we were getting some wins. But I realized uh, that there was some inauthenticity to it. 
because I was working with you know adult professionals and I was helping them, but it was inauthentic because here I am telling them what they need to do. The way the mistake we all fall into. I've studied so much of this. I see what you're doing wrong. Here's what you need to do. And I would tell them what I think they need to do in a polite way, in a professional way. But here's my recommendation and here's a detail. But after four or five years of it, I thought there's something wrong here. And what was wrong was they weren't contributing to their own excellence. They had gotten there oftentimes without me and they'd hit a slump. And by doing what I told them to do, they start playing better. So all of a sudden, I get more authority than I need. It's like, oh, man, Gio's a miracle worker. I do what he told me to do. I went from missing cuts, and now, so now what do I do? And I'm like, here's what you need to do. Well, all of a sudden, that can be intoxicating, almost sort of a God complex, because you're helping people. They are getting better. You have a real talent. But once they're better, there's a timeline here where you want to sort of, you don't want to be driving the train. You want to sort of get to the back of the train and let them have autonomy again but there are times where you want them to do exactly what you want because you see it better than they do and there's times where you have to be humble enough to say you know i'm going to get out of the way of this thing because he's got it he's playing great caddy coach player are a perfect uh, trio there's really no role for me here and you have to be confident enough in yourself to sort of get out of the way of that and so what i started doing was i changed the way i do business with players but more importantly at the beginning of the year i would ask them all what do you think you need to be your best? When you've been your best, how do you feel? How do you think? What does your life look like? And I started letting them author their own playbooks is the way I would describe it. Now, it had to be within the parameters of good psychology. Like if they were to say, yeah, you know, I'm at my best when I drink all the time and I'm living a really sloppy life because I'm reckless, but also on the golf course, it lets me be fearless because I'm not only playing with nothing to lose, but I'm living life with nothing to lose. And, you know, it's that it's that gunfighter, gunslinger. My Anthony Kim comes to mind, right? The old golfer, Anthony Kim, right? That, you know, his personal life and his golf life were pretty much the same thing. He was reckless and it was also fearless and it worked on the golf course. And when it didn't, it didn't matter because he was playing for glory. That's unsustainable. Uh, it works in short spurts, but eventually that train was going to derail. The injury was probably the best thing that could have happened to Anthony Kim because he got the insurance policy. I don't know that, but at that time, knowing his age and the things he liked and how he was living life. And so, but letting people say, here's, here's me at my best. And then you build a psychological and a process, a playbook around that so they can feel empowered, I think is really important. You just touched on something that I had thought about when you were discussing kind of the unique solutions that as coaches we're obligated to provide. You said the word glory there, and it made me think about some stuff in your book about mastery orientation versus ego orientation and something that I've always been curious about and understanding. I'll tell you what, before I dig in, can you give your version just so the listener can can have an understanding for this, kind of the distinction between mastery and ego orientation and kind of our, our achievement orientation and motivations. Yeah, one of the things you often, again, if you go back to the causal chain, the way the dominoes fall, it eventually shows up on the scorecard. But if you start going backwards, it's okay. Well, there's a golf swing. Well, before the golf swing, there's fundamentals, right? Before the fundamentals, and, and there's a physical capability to get there. And before that, there's there's habits, and you keep going. But there's an internal life that manifests. It's an expression uh, that expresses their golf game. And one of the things I often say, not always, but often will say to clients is you got to understand your whys. you got to get to your whys. 
because if things are happening on the golf course, oftentimes it's rooted in a simple question of why do you play golf? I'll give an example. When I first met with Justin Rose, uh, Justin had been on the PGA Tour for nine years, and he played 340 tournaments and had never won. Right? So he was 0 for 340, nine years, never won. Had to lead a lot. Had to lead a lot on Sundays. But, and I said to him, I said, the reality is when my guys see you on the leaderboard, no one's really worried. Like, that, that's a fact. Like, when you're there on Sunday, it's, you know, it's predictable. And that, not to be harsh, but that, that's just, you know, let's, let's be honest. You help you get to honesty. So I said, well, let me tell you, I asked you a question. I said, why do you play golf? He said, well, what do you mean? Why do you play golf? He goes, I don't understand the question. <laughs> I said, you've been getting up every day since you were a kid. I watched a video where you wash your golf balls in the washing machine. And you take great care and you travel all over the world. and You do this and you've never stopped to ask yourself why. I said, no, it's okay. I said, well, why don't you explore that question? I said, I was, I was on vacation at the time when he called me. I said, let's meet next week and let's start to unpackage it. And he, I use him as an example because it's a textbook example, literally clinical textbook example of the power of why for some people, not forever, because some people do know why they do it. And what you come to realize when you ask that question is almost every human being can be bucketed into one of two categories. It's mastery or ego. Mastery or ego. And, and mastery-oriented people, when you ask why, tend to be driven by things like intrinsic motivation, love of the craft, pursuit of the path, learning. Right? They like to learn. Continual improvement defined by the idea of Kaizen, just keep getting better. And there's, there's a real joy that comes with the game. The game being whatever game, whether it's stock market investing or sales or sailing or MMA fighting or golf. But it's a, there's a purity of drive. It's a purity. It's a natural expression of who you are as a person. The famous Ben Hogan line, you know, golf is a livelihood in doing the thing I love to do. I don't like the glamour. I just like the game. And so that distinction between liking golf or liking the things that come with golf, that golf can provide for you. That's the separation moment. It's to what degree are you doing this because you love your relationship with the game, and to what degree are you driven by the things that you get from playing the game? Because that's the trap. That's what's called ego. Ego-driven golfers are defined by their drive for practicing, for playing, is to bolster their ego, right? To become a somebody to beat other players, to prove something to somebody else. Image management. In other words, they're not working hard because they want to. And they're not working hard necessarily because they love the process anymore. They're working hard because they want to prove to other people that they're capable. So essentially, effectively, what they've done is they've taken, taken ownership of their life, of their confidence, of their joy, and they've externalized it. They've given it to other people. Now, what's even more interesting is that other people could be the media. So, the, so it's not even an individual. It's this, this monolithic thing called them, right? I, don't, I, don't, I, ca I care about what they say. Well, who's they? Well, everybody. Well, that's a problem because you know, people have opinions that are not rooted in anything but their mood, and especially with Twitter and, and all this other nonsense happening. So what happens is with golfers, and this happens 99. 5% of the time, I would say to professional golfers, is there's a transition. So they start out by being mastery golfers. In other words, why did you get into golf? When you were a kid, did you practice and play and 
I'm going to ask both of you. Did you ever play golf until it was too dark to see the ball? Yes. Yeah, no doubt. Why? Because we loved it, trying to get better, trying to figure it out. And when the sun would set, you were like, oh, I wish it was daylight a little bit longer. So the next morning, you do what you have to do for school, and you can't, mom or dad can't drive you to the golf course fast enough. You can't put the ball on the ground fast enough to see what that day is going to have in store for you. And when you're young, it's that motivation which leads to skill development and passion and understanding and eventually excellence. Thousand percent. Right. So, so it's, it's that, that's, that's mastery golf epitomized. So what happens? Well, the pure motivation leads to skills and people start taking notice of it. So now all of a sudden you're at the club and the head pro's like, Hey, good job today. Nice. And then the president of the club and maybe some members, you're getting recognition, you're getting popularity. And maybe some, you know, somebody asks, you know, buy, gives you a free hot dog or buys you a soda or, or you know, or starts giving you compliment. Now, Connect this to the fact that as human beings, it's important to feel important. So now you're at your local club and you're a big deal and golf has given this to you, right? So all of a sudden there's a blending of, of people like me. People treat me as special because of golf. But then what always happens is you start playing worse because golf is a game of, of peaks and valleys. And those same people who are giving you all this praise and recognition and building your ego, where are they? They're probably not going to be mean and be critical unless they're like your guys on your team or people who you've wronged. But they're probably just going to look at you and have sympathy and maybe look away. Now you start to feel embarrassed because golf is no longer about golf. Golf is about image management, pride, love. And that's a lot of pressure to put on a golf game. And as you go into college, you get medals and accolades and trophies and the PGA Tour, it's contracts and money. So oftentimes the, the developmental trajectory begins as mastery and then it becomes, well, the drive now is to get a scholarship. Now the drive is to beat that person. All of a sudden, by the time somebody's on the, you know, a veteran on the PGA Tour, golf has become about so many things that have nothing to do with golf. And even worse, those things are variables, not constants. They fluctuate on their own. So now your psychology, which you have attached to things over which you have no control, for example, other people's opinions or what people say about you. You have no control over that, but you care because when you were doing great, that was fueling you. Man, people love me. They're praising me. Look at the recognition. Look at the money. Those become psychological attachments. But just because you're playing bad doesn't mean the attachments go away. So now you are on the roller coaster of things over which you have no control and that's what your life looks like. And, and when that happens, then all of a sudden, the way it plays out in golf is, you know, you're playing because you want to play good because you, you want recognition or praise. Or you want people to stop criticizing you or, or you want the. So now you're on the first tee and your tension levels are spiked and you're and the fairway looks narrow. And by the way, your reactions change. Whereas when you're confident, you miss a putt. Who cares? You accept it. You're, you know, you're going to figure it out down the road because you're a good putter. All of a sudden it's, oh, no, what do they think of it? It's more pressure. Now you're embarrassed, and all of a sudden it's this runaway train, which is why oftentimes when you know golfers go off the rails, like it's irrecoverable. Because if you insert embarrassment in terms of psychological, emotional pain, there are a few things as painful as humiliation, maybe grieving, uh, grieving and death. But but beyond that, like humiliation is is a very powerful, dri aversive driver, and people will do anything to avoid feeling humiliated or embarrassed. 
And for professional golfers who are on the media, on a stage, who are going through a little slump, humiliation gets introduced into the equation, and that is absolutely unequivocally toxic. But that's why mastery and ego matter. Ego matters because eventually it ends up in humiliation, unless you're going to be great forever. Yeah. A follow-up there is as the pendulum is swinging, which it oftentimes does from an initial orientation towards mastery and then shifts beyond midline to ego and then to dysfunctional ego, it's one thing to know that there are tools and tactics to refine, get you back on the track, so to speak. But are there a couple of things that you would define as best practices that would be identity regulators, things that you can do as an athlete that stem the tide that are preventative towards shifting too far in that ego direction? Sure. And and, and one thing I'll say about that is we're all blending of both. Like to be purely mastery means you would just sit alone on a golf course every day, mastering your craft. And it'd be like an Ayn Rand novel, right? But like, like that's not reality. It's okay to have a little ego and a little pride and competitiveness. Like it's just when they get out of balance, right? When there's when when ego is so extreme that you have no love for the game, you're doing it only for the glory. That's toxic and that will always fail. So you're looking for the blending, right? But but you always want it to be more mastery than ego. And so, you know, one of the things you ask golfers to do is you just, you just, you ask them to rank order. Like, why do you play golf? You ask them to make a list. You know, what are your drivers? What are your motives? And you ask them to weight them. Like, what's the most important? You teach them about the drivers. You talk to them about embarrassment, like, and shame. Because again, I always say to any golfer who wants to work with me, I always say, we have to make an agreement on the front end that you'll take embarrassment out of play as a reaction. Like, you play bad golf, you're allowed to be angry. You're allowed to be disappointed. You can be frustrated. You can accept it. You can have humor. You're not allowed to feel embarrassed. Because once you introduce embarrassment into the reaction, into the brain, even the threat of embarrassment, that you might be embarrassed, causes so much angst and such a physiological spike. It's very hard, independent of technical excellence, I might add. Independent of technical excellence, embarrassment, soap, it's like a throw switch, like pulling a fire alarm in a building shuts down the brain in such powerful ways that the best golf swings can come undone. And so the way I, I ask my golfers, I have some evaluation sheets that, that give them a profile of where they are on the mastery versus ego spectrum. And then it's a discussion. And then as a coach, you just monitor over time. You know, there's this great quote out of the book, The Talent Code. I forget the coach. I think it's, uh, I forget that Hernandez is the name of the coach who uses the phrase whipped cream and shit. You know, whipped cream and shit. What he said, you know, if I have a golfer who's struggling, who's low on confidence, is beating him or herself up, as a coach, you got to find a way to stir some whipped cream in their life, right? Hey, you're better than this. Hey, you're great. You're good. Like, you encourage the heck out of them. Like, you bolster their, their confidence. And then when you get a golfer who's too confident, too cocky, maybe arrogant over his skis, you find a way to stir some shit into their life, right? You, hey, you're not that good and you're over earning right now. Like, you know, you shot 65, but we, you know, you got three good bounces and, you know, on Friday, and this could have easily been a missed cut. So like, let's be honest, let's be accurate about what's happening here. So just trying to understand where your golfer is on the parameters, very seldom is confidence perfectly what we call calibrated. I mean, very seldom do people go through life exactly aware of where they're at, and how good they are. People tend to be a little bit overconfident or a little bit underconfident. As a coach, it's your job to know whether someone's better than they think they are or not as good. 
It's a very interesting segue into a conversation about coaching or collectively the big umbrella of support, those out there that are supporting the pursuit of greatness, if you will, whether that's individual greatness to play at a high school or collegiate level or beyond. And we have the conversation a lot about the effective wake that we have in our verbals and nonverbals. And you and I have actually had a conversation about it. So I'm just going to leave that out there for you to wax fantastic on, uh, I guess, best practices, what to be aware of as you're coaching, whether you're a parent coaching or whether you're actually a coach out there coaching athletes. I think because so much of psychology is contagious, right? So much of our psychology is contagious. Like if you're, if you're in a family, and you're somebody who's in a bad mood every day and you're grouchy and you have a temper, chances are your kids are going to have bad tempers and they're going to be grouchy and see negative things and live a fearful life. And and that happens when you create when golfers create a team around them. And I've, I've seen it happen. I've seen individuals who tried to play professionally. Maybe they weren't great putters. And then they become coaches. And all of a sudden, like their player, you know, has a great fully, not a great, aren't great putters. Maybe not always causal. But confidence is contagious. The anxiety is contagious. You know, we, we project our own insecurities unconsciously on the people around us. And so I, I often, I remember, I've, I've often seen, quote unquote, sports psychologists whose lives are so dysfunctional. And the question becomes, or coaches who are so dysfunctional that the question becomes, what are you teaching? Like, are you imprinting on these individuals as some exemplar? And so if you as an individual are so fully out of whack, you're probably not going to be that helpful, first of all. Second of all, manage need. Need is a really interesting thing. If I need, if I'm, if I'm a stock trader and I need to make money because I you know, bought a $5 million house and I had a good year last year and I'm having a bad year this year, but I'm on the hook for a $4 million mortgage, but I don't have $4 million saved. Well, I need to make money. So now I'm going to impose my need on the market. But the market doesn't care that I need to make money. The market, you always say about the stock market, it's designed to impose the most amount of pain on the greatest number of people for the longest amount of time. So if you're going to be a professional stock trader, understand that you're playing with an entity that's designed to inflict pain for the longest amount of time but to the most number of people. But now the setup is I need to make money. So now I'm desperate and I'm imposing my need. And the, sure enough, the market's going to clean your clock because that's what it's designed to do, which is expose inefficiencies in your thinking. Translation to golf. What does a championship golf course do? U.S. Open golf course. If, it's, if the USGA doesn't screw it up, if it's set up the right way, God forbid they get that right. <laughs> it's designed to expose weakness, just like the market. Not only technical, in other words, you have to drive it straight and far. You have to control your irons with the right spin and land it the right way. You have to have a great short game. You have to have deft touch on the green. Psychologically, you also have to have great composure because you start getting jittery with the putter, gripping it too tight, and so forth. It's going to get exposed. So I often say that for coaches, if you're going to help your player, make sure your life is buttoned up. In other words, I, I try to make, even when I was more poor than I am now. I always made agreements with individuals. I always kept at least two jobs, my professorship and my clients, because I never wanted to need my players. Because if I need them, then my advice becomes about my need, not about their greatness. And if you're really, truly 
in the business of helping people, and it's your calling, and it is about them more than it is about you, then you can't need them. You have to have a life that is somewhat sustaining, and the agreement with the player is that, not in your guys' job as much, because people always need technical coaching, but for someone who does what I do, essentially your job is to get yourself fired. And like that's a hard thing to do when you have bills and you have a family, but it's the right way to do the job. My job is to get someone so self-sustaining and, and, and self-regulating that they want to call me four times a year or, or when something's actually happening. But I don't think everyone needs a sports psychologist and people who do don't need it all the time. And so you better get yourself in a place as an individual where you are, you yourself are buttoned up. You're confident in yourself. You actually do care about other people's well-being more than your own. Or there can be a synergy there where we all win together. But you can't put yourself ahead of the player. You know, you're the drummer, not the lead singer, right? And so I think my advice to coaches is, is audit yourself and make sure that you're in a place, either your lifestyle is simple enough that you don't live beyond your means, whether you're making 30 grand a year or 50 or 90, that doesn't matter because people always have it to live beyond their means. But if you can live within your means so that you can be in the best interest of the player, eventually that comes full circle. I've, I tell you, I've done work with players over the years. And I think I've tried to always do it the right way by my definition. And we part ways because they're winning or they're playing great golf. And there's nothing more for me to say at this moment. And then years later, they come back and say, listen, can I get back on the couch? I say, sure. But that's the right way to do it is, is you have to have the confidence to separate. And if, if, you're, if you're good at your job and you care about their success, they're going to find you again. Or they're going to tell someone down the road, he's great. And someone else is going to. You're always going to have business if you do it the right way. A couple of quick ones to finish up with here. When I say quick, they're quick questions to ask, but they may not be quick to answer. So we'll see how it goes. First one is swing thought, swing feel versus playing from unconscious. I have no opinion on that, Cameron. I've met golfers who, you know, again, it goes back to knowing the individual. Some people like to have, they call them swing keys. Some people like to see shapes. Some people like to see targets. I've had golfers who play great for months focusing on nothing but a target. And then that gets stale, and so they want to start seeing shapes and shots. And it's like putting a line on a golf ball. It works until it doesn't, right? Because then it's constricting. And I think those things change. I, I do have a general rule of thumb. You want to keep it limited. I don't know any golfer who's been able to play with more than two or three thoughts play well consistently. I always like the metaphor, be a, be a chess player behind the ball and an athlete over it. I do all your thinking behind the ball. Then once you get over the ball, it's, you know, either see your shot or see your target and then fully commit and on some level go unconscious. But but that's that's really an individual thing, I think. Beautiful. Beautiful. How about time wasters from a, a mental management or psychological development standpoint? What's overrated and should not be given much effort? That's a really good one. How do people how do golfers spend time waste time? That's an easy answer for like the from a technical standpoint. It may be a harder answer from a mental standpoint because they're not spending enough time. There's very few players that are spending enough time nurturing the right <laughs> kind of mindset. And maybe maybe that's the the answer that we get out of this. Yeah. No, no. I have one answer to that. It's a sort of an answer. The old saying, "The land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king." There is a lot of really bad psychology out there. 
<laughs> that's not even really psychology, right? It's it's people read a self help book and then they start espousing it as psychology. And you guys see it in golf and I imagine that you have listened to swing instructors and you're you're mesmerized that people are listening to you like this is sh- so shockingly bad. And this person is saying it with such confidence. And so I think the biggest time waster is the consumption of bad information. Like I think TED Talks are a disaster because what they've done is they, uh, but again, it creates opportunity for competent people is, you know, it used to be you write a good book and the book had to be sort of evidence-based and scrutinized by, uh, by some level of oversight before it got published. And then, you know, let it be what it is. But like anyone can do a TED Talk now. And all you have to do is be clever and have a message and you're a star and then you're coaching people. And I think that that is the, it's literally the most insane thing I've seen uh, in my lifetime. But again, it's okay because eventually it's, like, things are going to fall apart and it's sad, but I think, I think people have to be really careful, like, like caveat emptor, mm-hmm. buyer beware. Right. Very good. And lastly, with the assumption being that you want people to find you or want people to learn more about you, where would they go about doing that? Do you have a, an, a book in the pipeline, a website that we can point people to or none of the above? I have a website, fearlessgolf.com, but it's being worked on right now. <laughs> and I actually am working on a book. It's been a long time in the making. It's called The Philosophy of Golf. You know, psychology and philosophy Psychology was born out of philosophy. Psychology is actually a relatively young field, a couple hundred years old. I mean, there wasn't always psychology. There's always philosophy. And so I think this is sort of a historically rooted book that connects the history of the game with philosophies of the game and modern understandings of psychology, I think, to give a, a comprehensive. I don't think it's going to be a bestseller. I'm writing it for more for like people like you and me who like geek out on golf. But yeah, I'm looking to have that done by the end of next summer. Sweet. We'll stay on the uh, watch for that and as always, we can't thank you enough. The conversation goes a mile wide and a mile deep with an amazing volume of uh, good nuggets of wisdom there for us to continue to make sense of and put into practice as we will re-listen to this, as I hope our listeners to will also re-listen to this, and I imagine they will. So again, just to close, thank you, Gio, for your time. I appreciate it immensely. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a wonderful day. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.